I want to um, want to bring two phrases from the Bible to your attention. One is the words of Jesus, where he said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do." The other would be the words of Psalm 2, the, the idea of which I think is echoed in this psalm, where it says, The Lord looks down from heaven and laughs against the nations, here in verse 8 of Psalm 59. But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at the nations, at all the nations. This particular psalm is not especially difficult in terms of its format. It's, it's a lament with perhaps elements of a song of trust in God. Uh, we've seen that a bunch of times in the Psalms, so that's not unfamiliar. Um, the expression of trust in God in the midst of a difficult circumstance, that's not really a new thing either. We see that a lot in the Psalms. The problem with this Psalm for us today, I think, is more of a theological one. And that is, what do you do with it? I mean, we can certainly agree with the first words there. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. I think we'd say, sure, we can, we can say when somebody is coming after us with violence, we can say, God, deliver me. And then, assuming God answers that prayer, verse 16, but as for me, I shall sing of your strength, Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. God delivers us. We can rejoice. We can praise his name as the God who's our rock, our refuge, to covenant faithfulness to his people, loving loyalty, all those sorts of ideas. We'd say, sure, we agree with that. Well, then we have verse 5. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Verse 9. Because of his strength I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. God and my loving kindness will meet me. We see that at the end in verse 17. But then he says, God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, on, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. So the first few verses and the last few verses, we'd say, sure, that, that doesn't seem all that difficult to apply today. Call to God in a time of trouble. Praise Him when He delivers you. But what do we do with that middle part? Particularly when we think of the words of Jesus who looks at the wicked and says to them, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. So what do we do with it? I know we don't usually do interactive stuff on Wednesday night. What do you think we do with that? How do we make all those pieces fit together 
Okay. So what's the time and what's the place? I'm not saying that's, I, I agree with you. Say yes. Any any other thoughts about this? We've got this 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 thing of God cast them down, and then uh, look at verse thirteen. Though I think this helps to maybe set the stage for us to arrive at the right answer. What does it say? The reason for destroying in wrath that they may may be no more. This passage, I think, touches at the perennial question of what's the Bible about? So you have biblical theology of particularly like a book. What is the book of Genesis about? What are some themes and those sorts of things? You have what's the Old Testament about? What's the New Testament about? And then if you zoom out and you look at the whole Bible, you have this question of what's the whole Bible about? So what are some possible answers to that question? What is the whole Bible about? Okay, but like, let's turn into an action statement. Like, not just God, like the subject, but like, finish the sentence. Okay. Through Christ. Okay, what else? Okay, what else? Okay, so truths about God. Yes. Okay. So we have, if we draw all these ideas together, and maybe some that are in the text here, we have the ideas of God making himself known, which would be linked to why does God make himself known so that they may know that God rules in Jacob. What's the ultimate end of that? What happens toward God when people know that he's God? They praise him, worship him, he receives glory. All those sorts of overlapping phrases. So we have that idea, and that's sort of like the end goal. So it starts with God, and it ends with God's glory, and then what do we have in the middle? We have God's work in the world, which involves things like showing people his character. It involves punishing the wicked, forgiving those who ask his forgiveness. So we could say, if, if we perhaps slightly simplistically summed it up, God works in the world through salvation and judgment to bring himself glory. Right? And there's probably, we could certainly make that way longer, because there's way more in Scripture than just those few words. But Something along those lines, I think we have to say in order to capture what God is doing. Sometimes people will say only the idea of salvation. But is God glorified when he casts down the wicked? Yes. God glorified when he saves the wicked. Yes. And we see both things happening in Scripture. So part of the tension, I think, for us is we want to see people trust in God, 
And so we feel like to pray for God to destroy them utterly doesn't fit with God save them, right? But I think when we take a step back, what do we see? Ultimately, the main thing that we ought to be praying for is for God to be glorified in what he is doing in the world. And God has two answers to that question. One is, I save this person. The other is, I cast this person down. But in both of those, he says yes to his own glory. You mentioned time and place. Think about Christ's coming. What is different between David's perspective on Christ's coming and our perspective on Christ's coming with regard to some of the things that we're talking about here? What did David expect Jesus to come as based on the things that God had told him up to that point? Ruler. And what king will allow rebels in his kingdom to stand, right? What's the natural response to a rebellion in your kingdom? You crush it before it spreads, right? What does the rest of the Bible give us a picture of and the first coming of Christ? What do those two things give us a picture of that maybe David did not have a full understanding of? Jesus as the what? The lamb, the Messiah, Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. Jesus comes the first time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. John says, talks about him coming and, and offering salvation and making God known. And uh, I was just talking with the kids about this. Uh, Maggie was quoting uh, John 3, 16 and 17. And it talks about anyone who believes in him will have everlasting life. And he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so the world through him might be saved. Sometimes we fail to jump down to the end of the chapter where it says, but those who don't believe are already condemned. And so when we take that chapter as a whole, we, we recognize that Jesus comes to bring salvation, but there are still those who are wicked in the world. And just like, remember in our study of Genesis, what did God say to Abraham? about the Canaanites. Four generations, you'll be back. There's a time frame. There's a ticking clock. There's a countdown. We're in a countdown between the cross and the second coming. Right? In that interval, all those who will be saved will be saved. And after that point, no more will be saved. So when we think about all of those ideas that we know from the rest of Scripture, and we think about this psalm, and we think about how to apply it, I think we arrive at an idea along these lines, which is this. Jesus, in his first coming, models for us the primary response that we as believers ought to have toward the lost around us, because this is the work that God is doing at this present time, to save the lost. But, if we do, as the Thessalonians, anticipate the second coming of Christ, we know that there is a day coming in which Jesus comes to rule and to reign, and in that coming, all opposition will be cast down, all evil will be destroyed, 
Christ will reign in victory and God will receive glory. Kingdom, kingdom, cross. There are those who would argue that we're presently in God's kingdom and there's a sense in which God always has and always will be king. I don't deny that. But in terms of Christ ruling on earth as the recognized king over all the nations, to the extent that, verse 13, men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, I don't think the optimism of that phrase has ever been fully realized at any point in Israel's history up to the present time. So, I think for us as New Testament believers, there is a real and present sense that, as I put on your sheet, we ought to invoke God against the treacherous, but we do it like this. God, this person has betrayed me. We're just talking about that, right? Someone has deceived me, tricked me, lied to me, harmed me in some way. In David's case, assuming that the inscription is correct, and some people go back and forth on whether the circumstances of the psalm match the inscription. At psalm, uh, or 1 Samuel 19, Saul sends some men to watch David's house to kill him. Here's how I would sort of resolve that. This psalm fits a variety of circumstances that we see in the Bible. Saul trying to kill David, the Jews trying to kill Paul, all of these sorts of examples that we see all throughout Scripture, Judas betraying Jesus, there are many accounts of treachery throughout the Bible, and the proper response for one of God's people is to acknowledge that God is the one who can deal with overwhelming foes. But for us, following Jesus' example, we ought to desire their salvation. We also know that there is a day coming when that salvation will no longer be possible, and God is going to execute justice on all those who have not received it on this earth. And there are times throughout that time period between when Jesus has come and when he comes again in which God casts down, like he does in this psalm, those who are wicked. And it would be wrong of us to say to, at that point, sympathize with the wicked as though God had done something wrong. Those are difficult things to hold in balance, right? Love for the wicked, recognition that God's justice is coming, a desire to see that justice come because the world is broken, all is not the way that it's supposed to be. How does this psalm describe the wicked? They return at evening, they howl like a dog, go around the city, they belch forth, probably not the best translation. It's the idea of like wild dogs with saliva dripping out of their mouths, slavering, coming to attack you. Swords are in their lips. 
for they say, who hears? And there's sort of this picture in which the wicked are melded with the picture of the wild dog, just like the wild dog comes and bites you and gives you rabies and diseases and bites your arm and wounds it and all those sorts of things. The wicked with their mouths destroy those around them. Same image is picked up in verse 14. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, go around the city, they wander about for food and growl if they're not satisfied. It's like, so we don't really have this image because, you know, people get panicky if somebody sees a coyote in the back of a wooded area near their subdivision. But for them, it was a common occurrence, wild dogs roaming the streets, eating trash, eating scraps of food that are left out. That's the image of the wicked that we see here. That's the, the sense that the psalmist has of their danger and their destructiveness and his need for God to intervene and to help him. And I think for us, we have sort of a, a picture that flickers back and forth, right? Rabid dog wants to kill you. That dog at the shelter that's been kicked and abused and beaten and whatever, and you look at him and you're like, you have a little bit of sympathy for it, right, maybe? Even though it's dirty and it has scars on it and all these other sorts of things. Until the day when those two pictures are, are merged or done away with, that's sort of the, the tension we find ourselves in, right? I'm supposed to have compassion on the lost because Jesus did and because that was me. But I'm also supposed to beware the danger and recognize where they stand before God. And if it sounds like I'm going in circles, I'm trying to hold this tension that the Bible has between the differences in David's circumstance and our circumstance and what will be, and think about, so then how does that affect our actions? And so briefly, as we, as we sort of bring all these things together, how do we apply those things? We recognize that God is the one we have confidence in. If you are the hero in an adventure story and you're in the desert and there's a pack of hyenas coming after you or, or, or lions or whatever else, you know that because it's a, not going to be a great story if the hero dies, everything's going to be okay we're not supposed to have that sort of self-confidence. Our confidence is not in us, it's in God. And so that's one of the things we ought to take from this passage, is when we are overwhelmed by the treachery of the wicked, that ought to drive us to our, our knees to pray to God, because he's the one that we need to help and to intervene. Another thing that I think that we ought to see from this psalm is... Verse 3, 
at the end of it, it says, Not for transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. We should, I think, ask ourselves this question, have I done anything to deserve the opposition of the wicked? The reason I say this is because there's parallels between this passage and some of the things Peter says in 1 Peter. You're supposed to follow Christ's example, Peter says. Suffer under unjust persecution, even as Jesus did in trusting your soul to a faithful creator. But what does he say right alongside that? Let none of you suffer as a thief or a murderer or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Sometimes opposition from the lost comes into our lives because we're sinners. And it's not so much about because we've had a great testimony as a Christian, it's because we've sinned in some way, and so now are, there's this friction, there's this tension between them and us. So not only should we seek God in prayer, but we also should examine our own lives, because if we're coming before God and saying, God, I don't deserve this, and why would you possibly let this come into my life? There may come the voice of conviction that says, are you really? All of us stumble in many ways. James said that, right? And so we can look at the arrogant words of the wicked and say, man, I can't believe that person would talk that way right after we get done talking that way in slightly different phrasing ourselves. What else should we see from this psalm. The goal is not ultimately our deliverance, although that is what we seek. What's the goal? Verse 13, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. God, from the very beginning of time, has been seeking to make himself known, and God wants himself to be known, and if that goal is accomplished, our Lives running smoothly are very much secondary to that main goal. And the reason that I point that out or I emphasize that is sometimes we look at the laments and we're like, oh, but it all worked out in the end, so that's good. That's the way it's always supposed to be. But that's not, according to Hebrews 11, the way that it always is, right? So, when we experience treachery, what does the treachery look like? The treachery looks like, verse 2, those who do iniquity, men of bloodshed, they set an ambush, they launch an attack, uh, they're treacherous in iniquity, they lie, verse 12, the sin of their mouth, the words of their lips, pride, curses, lies, all of these kinds of things that we see in the way that Saul treated David, right? You're my family. I'm going to give you my daughter. And then like a few verses later, he's trying to kill him. That's treachery. Paul is going along and serving the high priest, and then God converts him, and then some people hear him preaching the gospel, and they've surrounded like where the city gates, they're watching the city gates so that if he goes out, they can kill him. An interesting parallel between those two stories. David gets let down out of the window of his house. Saul gets let down out of the window of his house. And God spares both of them. 
But why did that even have to come about? Because there's this treachery of people who both want to see God's people dead and will lie and do anything that they have to do with their mouths in order to accomplish that goal. We can recognize that that's wrong. We can acknowledge that's not the way that it's supposed to be. We can pray for God to change them. We can avail ourselves of protections against people who lie. We can say, okay, here were the terms of the contract. You didn't follow it. Okay, let's sort this out. We can say, here's what was promised. You didn't follow through. I'm not saying, just like I would never say to a wife who's being mistreated by her husband, that First Peter says, you just got to deal with it because Jesus went through great hardship. That's not the point of a psalm like this. The point of a psalm like this is to say, we may be suffering unjustly. We may have people who are behaving treacherously toward us. We may have just an overwhelming sense of isolation because we need God's help and we don't see it yet. And I think First Thessalonians would say we may not see it in this life. That rest may not come until long down the road when Jesus returns. And yet we can cry out to God for deliverance. We can recognize that evil is wrong. We can call sin, sin. We can pray for those who are those sinners. And we can also say, Lord, I pray that you would save them. But if you do not save them, I pray that you would be glorified in showing your holiness in dealing with their sin. So what's the time and what's the place? I think because of Jesus' example and what he's called us to do in the church, we ought to give a primary emphasis on desiring the salvation of the lost. But that doesn't mean we forget about the other stuff that's down the road and the parallels between David's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom and God's justice accomplished in David's life and God's justice to be accomplished when Jesus comes to conquer and to reign. And so have I answered all the questions from this passage? No. But hopefully I've helped you to think a little bit about how this passage picks up themes that we see all throughout the Bible. God glorifying himself through saving sinners and through judging sinners. And how we can participate in that and how we can think about where we are in the unfolding of God's plan and how we can say, okay, God give me wisdom to know how to respond in these sorts of situations. I think we'll pause there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths together. There's far more in this passage and about the theme of the whole Bible and your desire to make yourself known among the nations and yet also the fact that you will bring them to judgment in the end, those that have not repented. Our 
responsibility to faithfully proclaim the gospel and yet to still recognize sin as sin, our responsibility to bear up under suffering and yet also to seek your deliverance, all these things seem like contrasts and, and contradictions and how do we fit them all together. But we see all of these things in your word, Lord, and I know that you can help us to have wisdom to respond rightly in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I pray that you give wisdom to each of us who are here how to work through the specific situations we find ourselves in that have parallels to what we see in the text here. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.